I feel that the only way to try to to create accountability is by documenting. Cairo is undergoing a period of rapid change and development. For its inhabitants, this means adjusting and readjusting to a new sense of place against a backdrop of permanent changes in the climate and environment. Artists Ideas Now talks to artists about the most pressing questions of today. This eight-part series is talking to artists from Egypt and of Egyptian heritage about climate, crisis, environment, protest and change. My name's Laura Marie Brown and I'm creative producer at Liverpool Arab Arts Festival and host of this series. Yasmin al-Rashidi is the author of The Battle for Egypt, Dispatches from the Revolution and Chronicle of a Last Summer, a coming-of-age novel that was longlisted for the 2017 Penn Open Book Award. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times and the New York Review of Books. She reflects on the impact changes having on Cairo and how it weaves in with the climate crisis and climate activism. The city is going through a, a, a major transformation. I mean, in, in some sense, looking back as, um, and I'll speak about Cairo specifically rather than Egypt as a whole, but as the city's population has exploded, which you know happened, really began to happen under Mubarak's rule um, in the 80s, um, there... I mean, the city couldn't house its its the the city couldn't house its population, and at first, what was happening was that there were all these sort of new residential areas sprouting up, and then what began to happen is in tandem is obviously real estate land took on a new value because there was, you know, less of it than was needed, and all the old things started to have, you know, you could sell an old house for a fortune. It would be pulled down and a building would go up in its place. Um, and I, for me, I, I became involved and conscious quite young because obviously we had this family house that became very coveted because it was on prime real estate. It was on the Nile um, and everyone saw it as a, this, a great place to build a building. And so that's, you know, as a teenager, I would say that's when I became very conscious of the desire and needs to preserve the history and heritage of the city as it has existed for, in, in the case of the house, not as long, obviously, but, but I became very conscious of that desire to preserve. Um, what has happened more recently, unfortunately, is under the current rule, our current president, is that there's um, there's this desire to modernize um, and the the, the 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 vision of modernity is a very particular vision which does not in my view take into account what makes Egypt and Cairo specifically uh, unique which is its very particular layered history and heritage which spans you know ottoman architecture mamluk fatimid obviously the, the pharaonic which is in a league of its own um and somewhere in this desire to modernize a lot is being lost even the things that you know you would 
expect would be preserved. Um, and this vision for modernity also also precludes, um, or it doesn't take into account the, the natural, the environmental heritage. So it's really a ravaging and a bulldozing through the city of everything that can be considered heritage, both urban and natural, um, to make way for bridges, highways, skyscrapers. Um, I mean, they're even building a walkway in the middle of the Nile. Uh, it impacts all of our, all of us. I mean, how I how I experience it is a I feel it's a real violation of my of my space and my city as I've always known it to be. Um, and it, it's a violation also in the sense that you, no matter what you say or do, there's no way of stopping it. There's no way of coming up with alternatives because it's seen as part of a, a much larger national vision and with it, for the future. And in that future, obviously, the citizens and the individuals of the present day don't really have a space or a voice. Your, your novel... Um... Chronicle of a Last Summer is inspired by your grandmother's home. Why did you choose to write a story that kind of spans across those generations focused on this place? I mean, the choice of the place is, um, you know, I think that the, the house was, has been, I think in ways remains my anchoring in the city. It was my, always my reference point. Um, and it, it it's um I mean it's sort of always it's what I return to. We left the house a few years ago for we had we had to sell it in the end for because there after my grandmother died there were some inheritance problems around it, and even though we've sold it, um, it still is my reference point. And almost every time someone asks me to write an essay about something, whether it's revolution or change, or I end up writing about that house. Um, and so it made sense to try and structure a story through and around it. The choice of time, I mean, I wrote that book after the revolution. Um, and I, at, I had sort of started thinking through and around a book um, before 2011 and then through it and after it. And initially I thought I would write a book that looked at that moment of change and looked at that moment of rupture. And the more I sort of delved into that, the more I realized that on the one hand, while that rupture and that voice and obviously the ex exhilaration of the revolution was very tempting as a narrative, I realized that what was perhaps most not even interesting to me, but puzzling to me. What I wanted to understand was um, was actually what bookended the revolution, which was really the silence or the quiet that had preceded it, and also in some sense that we fell into after it, after you know the disappointment set in. And I, it, it, it sort of just the, the more I sat with that and explored it and tried to understand how I could get to answers or or even in some sense more questions um i realized that or it came to me that you know it's that the silence is it was something that we were we were 
we were socialized to be silent. And perhaps we inherited silence from generations before us. And the only way that, for me, that I felt I could understand that was in going back to a possible childhood. Um, and so that's how, you know, the, the voice of this little girl came about. Um, and then in trying to understand, you know, how you could then go through a revolution and be on the streets and be active and vocal and then somehow revert back to that space that you inhabited before the revolution, I felt that you could really only understand that through time and through these, and what, what becomes what becomes these snapshots in the book of these three um, distinct summers. The book speaks about censorship as well and the different ways that history can be portrayed. Why did you want to focus on that? It, I mean, there were several reasons. I grew up in a home that was not, I mean, not at all political. Um, we, My father didn't live in Egypt. He was perhaps the only one who had been politically engaged as, as a university student. But my mother and my, you know, my mother's family were, they... I'm sure they had political opinions, but I never heard them. Um, and so that was, um, and so I was interested in that. I was interested in what it means when a, a narrative, you know, a political narrative or historical narratives are sort of erased from discourse. What does it do to a person? Um, and, and, and how does that, you know, how can that person come to be in the world as a, as an engaged citizen um, and an active, you know, citizen with stakes and um, and who's a, who is invested in the country, even if they they don't have, even if they weren't weren't schooled on the things that you imagine one should know, you know, which is the details of history and and political reality. But then also, I this question of censor, censorship was also um, related to my own writing. Um, in part, you know, I used to work for a local weekly newspaper and it, I, and I started working there when I was 19, 20. And it, I learned very quickly what you could and could not say. Um, and, it, and it becomes very difficult, I think, when you're both socialized in the home and also groomed in the workplace and in the public sphere to self-censor for self-preservation and protection, it becomes very difficult to unlearn that. And so the experience of revolution was really interesting in that suddenly you had absolute space to say what you want or what you wanted, but you had to learn, you had to really learn to do that as an individual. Certainly I did. And then there were cases where I wrote things that I perhaps censored more than in hindsight that I would have liked. And they were, you know, generated controversy. Um, um, and then, and, and then, you know, we get to this point now where, I mean, I, I try to be as open as I can be, but sometimes someone will say something and you'll really consider and reconsider what you're putting to the page or what you're putting to the tweet. 
um, I mean, it's impossible, I think, to separate censorship and self-censorship and the awareness of those things to art and writing in a country like this. It's, it's sort of part of your everyday life. You've, you've written a lot about censorship um, in the context of when you've been writing about your friend, you know, the, the writer Ala Abdel Fattah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that's kind of how you've sort of framed it within within that context as well? Ale is, you know, Ale is in some sense the most, um, it's the most extreme case of censorship or the ma- most extreme case of the attempts of a state to censor. And in this case, they, you know, he's been in prison largely for the, I mean, for the better part of the last 10 years, I would say, um, He's been in, he was released briefly in 2019 on probation and has been rearrested uh, and then was rearrested again, sorry, at, in September 2019, essentially for his voice, for his writing. I mean, all along, that's why he's been, that's why he's been jailed, which is if, if you can consider jail a form of, or an attempt to censor by the state, um, then he, the, it's that's why he's been imprisoned for speaking out for writing for being a voice that is you know recognized and respected um and i mean of course the in all this what's you know the the irony is that no matter what they try to do to censor him he keeps going um he keeps writing he writes from prison and he now he's on a hunger strike. He's been on a hunger strike for over 190 days now. That's that's him giving voice. You know, that's him speaking out when he's maybe unable to put things to the page. Um, and so Ale has been. I mean, Ale. Um, he dated a very close friend of mine, and his son and my goddaughter became close the summer that he was released. Um, and it's, I feel on some level, he, um, on some level, he sort of represents, I think he's the model of what we should all aspire to in some sense, you know, and he's the model of when I think about my own moments of, of self-censoring or being conscious of what I'm putting to the page, I think Ale is the model, um, and the measure of what one upholds as ideals, I think, in a country like this, if we are to move forward. You know, recently with all the destruction in the city, I've been, I I go through phases and fits of tweeting. I don't do it all the time, but then when I'm really angry about something, I, um, or, and very active, I've been very active around the destruction, both on the ground and a little bit on social media. Um, so I've been tweeting a lot and I keep getting these warnings, you know, people saying, be careful, uh, you don't want to end up in prison. Um, I think you've crossed the line here. You shouldn't say this, you shouldn't say that. And I do think about those things because I don't want to end up in prison. But then you think of Ale and you think of how he keeps going even when he's in jail, and you realize that you sort of have a responsibility to keep speaking out, 
for people like that who speak up for us? When we kind of look at everything in the round and kind of as a whole, a lot of it seems to be around that sense of not just personal responsibility, but the agency mm -hmm. of the individual and the agency of the individual to be able to say, to be able to speak, to be able to write, to be able to act, and how that kind of shapes our ability to mm -hmm. shape the world around us. When we look at that in the context of the climate mm -hmm. crisis, what do you think is the responsibility of the artist, specifically of writers, to have an impact? I feel we have a huge responsibility to be documenting and to be speaking out against everything that's happening. Um, the, I mean, I'll speak very locally in terms of Egypt. The level of destruction in this context is it's outrageous. It's, I mean, it's really hard to, it's almost hard to believe that, you know, this government is doing what it's doing to the country, which is impacting the environment. And that extends from, you know, chopping down thousands of acres of trees to building cement walkways in the Nile, which end up, you know, thousands of tons of cement are being poured into the Nile. Um, I mean, all the construction that's happening is, an, you know, is environmentally comes at a huge, huge cost at a time when other countries in the world or other cities in the world are trying to reverse the kind of building of highways and freeways and all this that they did 20, 30 years ago, we are going full speed ahead. This is almost like our national priority. And I feel that the only way to try to, or to, to create accountability is by documenting. And the only way to possibly influence or impact change, even if in a very small way, even if it's that we save one local garden in Cairo, you know, over the 10 that are destroyed, I really feel we have a huge responsibility to be doing that. Um, and it doesn't, you know, sometimes it's not even necessarily, you know, the documenting in, in the public sphere. I mean, but, but using your writing also, offering your writing to persuade people in office um, to, you know, and I mean, in my case, there's obviously there's the public stuff, but I'm, I'm spending much, much more time these days working with local community groups, you know, to um, address, to, to reach parliament and to have members of parliament speak up against these things and lending your writing to community leaders who may not be able to make the persuasive arguments because, you know, at, at the end of the day, writing is this tool that we, you know, one exercises. Um, so I think, I mean, I think we have a key role. Um, I mean, without the documentation, we have very little. Uh, and especially in a case like this, certainly Cairo and Alexandria, you wake up every day, really, and you don't know what you're going to find. If I don't go to a neighborhood from one week to the next, I mean, the, and there's a neighborhood 10 minutes across the bridge from where I live. I hadn't been there in two weeks. I, when I went, I was, last week, I was shocked. There was this huge garden in the middle of the road that they bulldozed to make way for another bridge. And, and so the only way you know, for the only way to 
for this, I think for this government to be held accountable is for all of us to be on the ground with our eyes open, documenting all this, both in writing and visually, obviously, you know, the visual documentation I think is, is key. Artists Ideas Now is produced by Liverpool Arab Arts Festival in collaboration with Artists on the Frontline. This series was supported by The Space and Arts Council England, with funding from the National Lottery. The producers are Laura Marie Brown and Zoe Lafferty. Executive producer is Sarah Fortescue. The series' music is by Yara McAway and is called Feed on Wasted Energy from her LP 1963. For more information on this series and to find out more about each of the artists featured, go to arabartsfestival.com and explore the reading list for each episode.